Good evening, America. This is a long time coming. You know, (laughs) it's been crazy because uh, even when I started doing podcasts, I was like, man, if I could just get Davin in the studio, what (laughs) what I could get him to say would change the the world. And finally, I get that that ability. Um, You know, we're doing this digitally, obviously, uh, from my, you know, studio in cyberspace from um, quarantine central yeah from quarantine central live from the ninth circle of hell los <laughs> angeles california downtown i'm Fuck interviewing yeah. my boy my eldest boy davin baxter um Woo-woo. you know the man of, of of many passports the man of many names um many countries <laughs> um and we'll get into that and as to what i mean um as we get through the podcast but just as, as some backstory just so that people understand who i'm talking to um, this podcast was, was mainly meant for me to, uh, you know, kind of catalog a lot of the people I've met throughout my life who, um, you know, uh, had some impact on me. I had some impact on them, but really there were people who I'd shared time with in one, you know, particular phase of my life or another. Um, this guest, Davin, is somebody who has been in my life for the longest out of anybody else that you'll hear on this podcast. I've known Davin for over 12 years now, so... Um, I goes back to that, fifth grade. Fifth grade. So I would say that uh, this is sort of about as um, fundamental as this podcast can get in terms of its theme. You know, um, I really wanted to talk to the people um, that I met at my walks of life, and this is somebody that has been at pretty much every major walk of my life, um, and I've caught throughout time and throughout space um, in different you know matrices and dimensions, but mainly on this one. You know, we've seen each other throughout the uh, the United States, um, but yeah, this is this is uh, the podcast I've always wanted to do. So, Davin, thanks for coming on. Really cool, a hell of an introduction as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, right now, um, we can find you somewhere outside of Mexico City. Is that correct? Puebla, Puebla, Mexico, Puebla, Cholula, yeah. Puebla, Cholula, Mexico. Cholula, Puebla, Mexico. Yeah. Cholula, Puebla, Mexico. So yeah. um, now you and I met um, over a decade ago in Maryland. Uh, Jesus. And uh, at that time, we pretty much had very similar lives, right? Like up until around 11th grade when you made that initial move to Turkey, you had a pretty much really a, like a, a, nice little, a nice little point to make there, though, because like we, you, me, and Quincy all moved to Maryland, that little spot in Maryland, that little point on this little blue planet, like, literally at the same exact time. Uh, we were all coming from different places, too. So I remember when we first got to, to Appleton, like, we didn't know anybody, so we uh, just started talking at a, at a random lunch table. I think Sorja was there, too, and we were just arguing over uh, Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo. <laughs> That was that was how, the first conversation. That was the first conversation we had. You're right. Um, 
Yeah, and that was fifth grade in Columbia, Maryland, Athelton Elementary School. Um, and we just all happened to sit down at the same table. And, That's um, crazy. you know, I think it's funny when we go back all the way to that point, you know, we can find so many different things that could tell us like, oh, you know, it was meant for us to be friends. But really, it was this occurrence that could, you know, could have happened anywhere. It just happened to happen to us at a very important time in our lives, you know, when we had moved somewhere that was foreign to to all three of us. And I think that's what kind of bonded us in the beginning. Yeah, uh, man, that we're was outsiders, you know. Season one, the pilot. That was the pilot. That really the was the sequence. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It really was. Um, so, I mean, those days we could go on. We could, we could do 10 podcasts on just fifth grade until ninth grade, honestly. But <laughs> I think, you know, for the purposes of this one, let's start at the beginning and work our way to the end, you know. Uh, or start, start, excuse me. Let's start at the end and work our way all the way to the beginning. Um, that is what I meant to say. Okay. Uh, so what I want to do, um, you know, you you did you did find places and times to find me in America, you know, when I was in college or when I happened to be on the East Coast. You know, we did catch up um, at certain points, but there were long stretches of time where you and I didn't communicate just because, you know, you were in Turkey. So I want to know about what that transition was, like coming from Maryland, that world that you and I know so well, into Turkey. It's a seven-hour time difference, yeah. Yeah, and just into a culture that couldn't be more farther from the culture that you had gone to. Like, it's not like you moved to fucking the UK. You moved to Turkey. <laughs> so yeah, it's, let's it's go a there. a different place. Yeah, with, with its own similarities and, you know, yeah, uh, where to begin, where to begin with that? I guess where to begin was, like, when my mom first told me, like, how would you feel about moving to Turkey? I was like, what is that? Like, I'd never even heard of this place before. <laughs> right. Um, and then, yeah, she was telling me about how she's got this new assignment, and then it's more than probably that she's going to be relocated to, to Ankara, Turkey. And she extended the invitation for me to live with her and finish out my high school years uh, in that particular place. And the other option was to go and live with my dad. And I was like, well, I mean, I'd much rather go to another country and, like, see what that's all about. Because, I mean, I don't know why. I don't know why I said why I was so open to the idea at first. Because I didn't even, like, think about it. I was just, like, sitting in the car with her. Uh, We were going to, like, a dentist appointment or something. And we were going to check up on my braces. And I was just... Yeah, let's do it. Why not? Uh, getting there was wild. I don't think I've ever been on a uh, plane that long. And when we <laughs> first got there, it was very different. Just like the whole scape and the whole the the scenery and everything. I'd never seen anything like that before. So what? I mean, because you 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 flew into Ankara, which is the capital city of Turkey. Mm-hmm. Right. You get off the plane and I, I have a I don't have um, any real understanding of what that must have been like. But around that same time, I'd gone to Ethiopia in 2010. I believe you left in 2011. So when I went to Ethiopia, the number one thing mm-hmm. that I noticed was that you're kind of in a daze. Like you, when you first get that's exactly how it felt. Yeah, <laughs> you're in this kind of like hazy, like. Nah, I'm still nah. There's a Chick Fil A right there. There's no way, you know what I mean. You're just like, there's no way I actually went across the planet. And then, like, when you get out of the airport and you feel like that, that foreign smell hit your 
nostrils and you're like oh yeah okay like the air's different a lot of different smells going around yeah Uh, just the air not just the (laughs) smells but just the air like texture like at least i felt in ethiopia like when i walked out of the airport i was like okay that was like my first sort of realist like you know like you kind of have multiple stages of realizing that you're on the other side of the planet but like i want to know like for you like what were those stages I'm not sure. I've never really thought about it like that, but I can, from you saying it, I I can definitely agree. Because at first, I was just sort of dumbstruck. Like, I didn't really have anything to say on it. I was just thinking, you know, taking in my surroundings, just observing, really. Uh, And trying to just sit with the fact that, all right, this is a completely different country. This is a completely different place. They speak a completely different language. This uh, could be very difficult, or this could be fairly easy. And I think most of it's going to largely depend on how it is that I'm going to be interacting with these people and how open my mind is to such different circumstances. Um, and that was kind of what my father had told me before, before leaving the country. He was just like, man, just keep an open mind. That's all you got to do. I was like, okay, it should be easy enough. Uh, first year, I think, was somewhat difficult but also somewhat pretty straightforward. I mean, I wasn't, you know, super popular in school. wasn't really like, I mean, I was trying to pay attention in school, but at the same time, there was still, I was still trying to get like the gist of everything. What were some of the big differences, like culturally, like when you're talking to a Turkish person who probably knows English pretty well, just from. Yeah, you know, most of the young Turks, they, they speak English very well. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know, you're talking to a Turkish person. What was something you noticed off the bat? You know, you came from Hammond High School, you know. You came from the, you know, you came from the batting cages, you know what I mean? <laughs> and you're you're talking to a Turkish guy who couldn't even conceive of that, that world that you just came from. What no, like I think I think they definitely could. They have, you think uh, so? I remember, yeah, I met this one guy who like literally learned English from uh from from rap music. He he learned all his music from like Eminem or something. <laughs> I met another guy. Yeah, I met another guy here in Mexico who learned all of his all of his English from YouTube as well. Yeah, well, it's not it's so much that they, it's not so much that they couldn't understand American culture, but more mm-hmm. more so just the specificities of Howard County, right? Like the yeah. specificities of of our our really insular Americanness, where like most people had never left the country that we knew. No, most mm-hmm. people were very fine with living right there in Maryland for in that exact town forever. You know, it yeah. wasn't like this cosmopolitan, like New York City kind of America that you came from. Mm-hmm. You came from the real, you know, real East Coast. So with that culture, you know, context, and then you're talking to people in your, at your school, like what were some of the things you noticed that were like just different or just lost in translation to anything? Man, I don't know about loss in translation, but one thing I noticed that was quite different from most of the people that we grew up with in, in Maryland, you can probably attest to this as well, but the fact that all these people, and I don't want to use this word and, you know, to like knock down anybody else, but like their ambition, their ambition okay. was completely different from like the ambitions of other people that we were growing up with in the States. And that's not, you know, I'm not saying that in any kind of like offensive or any kind of way, but it was just like, most of the people that I was meeting in Turkey had these huge plans of like doing university in New York or going abroad to Europe to do their studies there or uh, anything of that nature. Like what they wanted to do was ultimately travel and get to know more of the world. And 
experience things. And a lot of people that I met that even that weren't even from Turkey, that were maybe from other places like Syria, for instance, Jordan, uh, Oman, you know, a lot of people come to Turkey because it is like a, cosmopol- a cosmopolitan hub for that part of the world. You know, people from Asia come to Turkey, people from Europe, people from the Middle East, people from North Africa. It's a very hot spot. It's very much a hot spot for very different types of people who come from very different walks of life. And so that was probably the first thing that I noticed, just the sheer, just a whole different scale of diversity, I think. Because in the States, we look at diversity as like, I don't know, maybe you're white or maybe you're black or maybe you're from El Salvador or you're from this, or you're from that. But in Turkey, it was like a whole different batch of people from whole, uh, a lot of different other places that I had never even met anybody there uh, from there before. So that was definitely it. Uh, I remember one of... <laughs> One of my really good, two of my really good friends that came out of that, they were from Kazakhstan. And I remember Bora, and I was like, wait, Kazakhstan's a real country? I thought that was like, uh, <laughs> I thought that was oh my like, God. a joke or a part of, yeah, like, no, I was super ignorant, man. And that was, that was, I guess, the dumbfounding moment for me, as uh, ironic as that is, maybe. But it was just like, yo, I've literally been an ignorant piece of shit for the past, whatever, my entire life, essentially. And these guys are going to be the guys uh, to uh, to bring me out of that, and they did. Completely awesome. changed my perspective on the world, like three hundred and sixty degrees. I complete. I'm a completely different person now because of those people, and because of that experience, than I would have been if I had stayed in Maryland. Period. Yeah. Oh, that's for sure. Um, but I think like you had such a unique experience where like you said, you weren't just talking to people that were like from France or from the West. You were talking from people who, who are from everywhere, who, like who are really from like the farthest reaches of the planet. So you, you got yeah. this, uh, you, you got this really um, unique kind of uh, slice, like, you know, of humanity. Um, and I think, and I think that kind of uh, resonates off you. I remember when you came back to New Orleans. Um, I remember when you came back to New Orleans, man. You were, uh, oh man, there, there's some background noise, man. Sorry, yeah, getting some ice. Yeah, sorry. Got myself a little bit of a tequila here. I hear that. I hear that. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's on the recording. So when people listen to this podcast, they're going to hear you making a tequila. <laughs> I mean, hey, That's hey, fine. folks, okay we're doing, yeah, we're doing, we're doing this on Discord, guys. I mean, we're trying our best. Um, you know, it's, it's quarantine here. Um, anyways, uh, but yeah, so, when, we came, when I came to New Orleans, it was rubbing off. Yeah, I don't know yeah, what and, I, and, and and I think uh, I think with New Orleans, I kind of noticed that you had definitely matured a lot farther along in your just like a, you know sort of perspective on the world than like even I had at the time, just because of so much of your experiences. It kind of like it literally, you know, kind of everyone felt it who met you wow that guy seems like really like deep or like well traveled or like you really did like have that genuine quality coming off of you you know that a lot of people you know when they go to fucking you know they go to tanzania for a summer like they think that like they're that guy but like you really were that guy you know uh which was which was fun it, it was cool Thank to you. see that that you had, they, yeah that you had done so much in, in that amount of time did people really say that <laughs> oh yeah man oh I don't yeah believe man. You. <laughs> everybody fuck yeah man everybody said that about you dude um, it, it was, it, it was a quality that a lot of people don't 
see in, in the States because a lot of people don't travel like that, you know? And if they do travel, they stay in these little bubbles and they don't really experience the people and talk to, you know, like you got to go to school there. So you had to meet people your age that were from all these other places, you know? Like, yeah. That's really, that's really the key there is, um, is how much um, socially you were able to get out of that experience. Uh, but yeah, man, I, I kind of want to talk about, you know, specifically like some things that happened to you in Turkey that were like really big, I guess, pivotal moments in you kind of changing, you know, as, as a person, the, 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 the things that made you the dabbing that I saw in New Orleans, you know, that's kind of what I want to know. Um, well, definitely the protests and we can get into that a little bit later, but also meeting one really good friend of mine named Tarek, who's from Syria. Him and his brother came out of Aleppo. And their family, as the, from what they told me, like their family was displaced during the, uh, the civil war in Syria. And at that time, I was still like, I don't know, um, still understanding more things about the world as they were sort of happening around me. And just trying to wrap my mind around all of that. Because, you know, mind you, this is all in the midst of the Arab Spring. And so I didn't even know what that was at the time, you know. And talking to these people that were, that were forced from one place to another, like literally forced to make that change in their life. And then when they explained all the events that created that sort of situation and largely was the fault of, of our country, of the U.S., you know, that made me, that shook me a little bit. Like, I, it, it took me quite a while to understand. How, how did they say happened. it was the fault? Like, what, what was their um, kind of... Uh, Mostly just their superpower. Uh, vested interests and superpowers. You know, wanting to have a, a slice of the pie, I guess, in, in whatever sort of countries just falling apart but that is rich in natural resources or you know if we're even trying to use some kind of containment policy like when the russians got involved in syria we were like nah we can't have that so we got involved with there too but it was mostly just yeah man i mean of course bashar was the whole fucking the center of the peace for for that disaster of a situation but we can't sit here and say that we didn't have any involvement in that either i mean it was just. Well, I wonder, you know, because I think uh, I think the Syrian conflict is like something that I, I as Americans, know so little about that mm-hmm. it always shocks me to know how involved we may have been in the actual, you know, events preceding it. That I can't even really, you know, I, because I have such little information, I can't make any kind of heads or tails about what happened in Syria. It's kind of this blank. It's kind of this blank, like uh, you know, like what? Ha- what is who? The white helmets were helping, but then they weren't. You know, it's like I don't really know what to make of that because of the coverage and how confusing it was. So yeah. Syria, so Syria is one of those areas where you know, as much as there should be attention called to it, I think a lot of people they don't know where to start with it. They don't know mm-hmm. what to, what to think about it. So I mean, what did what did this guy? Um, what was his sort of thing about what did he say was going to happen with Syria? What did he think should happen? What was his thoughts on that? 
Mind you, this this goes back a long time ago, so I'm not really I don't remember exactly what it, how he felt about the direction of his country. I mean, no one was really fans of of Bashar, but at the same time, I started to notice that people who are coming from these types of countries really don't want superpower involvement in them. Like even with uh, my Libyan friends. We'd be like, yeah, man, the civil war is our fucking issue, you know, and we don't want we don't want help with that. Or right. if we want help, then we want help in a very specific kind of way. But of course, that isn't really the way international negotiation works in the middle of civil wars. You know, you can't always like negotiate the terms of things and, and expect everything to just be so fluid and, and natural and get everything you want just so you can win the win the battle. So, I mean, I, I don't really know, man. Syria is such a, a crazy, crazy situation. Yeah, and, let's get off Syria and let's go back to, to Turkey. You were talking about the protests. You were saying that there was some stuff going on that kind of helped, that kind of changed you in a positive way from seeing what was going on there. Um, and for a lot of people listening, I mean, uh, you know, the Arab Spring seems like this far off, you know, thing that may have happened somewhere in between the civil war and the war of 1812, you know, in terms of just like our, <laughs> our collective memory as, as a country. So if they're even know, aware of what it is, I mean, shit. I mean, for real, when I first um, heard it, I was like, what kind of, what is that? Some kind of festival? Yeah. 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 Are they doing that at Ibiza this year? Arab yeah. Spring? <laughs> that sounds lit. Yeah. But, uh, no. So, I mean, you you saw it firsthand because I think Turkey was really one of the hot spots, even though it wasn't an Arab country. Um, so there's there's a lot of there's some debate around that. Like there's some people that some uh, thinkers that believe Turkey was kind of like in its own thing, even though uh, coincidentally the Arab Spring happened to go happened to be going on literally at the exact same time. Uh, but all, mostly because of the causes that attributed to why Turkey started erupting in the first place. Uh, because the diff- because um, the stories in other countries were vastly different. I mean, in Tunisia, it was Mohamed Bouazizi, uh, fucking a fruit vendor in the middle of the street, got his cart confiscated. The police were not going to give him back to him, even though normally they would. On this particular occasion, they hadn't. And then he couldn't, he, he, had, he was provided no means to be able to provide for his family. Mm. And so he goes over to a gas station, takes out a, uh, purchases some gasoline, douses himself in the gasoline and lights himself on fire in front of uh, the, I, I believe it was the governor, the governor of the municipality, the local building. Wow. And then that's pretty much what kicked off the entirety of the Arab Spring. And that was, what, two weeks later, all of Tunisia was... You know, protests, violence, uh, police brutality, you know, all the things that you get when such tensions, such uh, public well, tensions within the public are so high and they're directed mm. at the state. Um, mm. After that, what was it, Algeria? Um, I don't know the chronologically, chronolo- chronologically, like what countries were going on um, one after the other. Mm. But Algeria popped off, Egypt popped off, I believe Morocco popped off. And then eventually uh, Turkey did too, but Turkey for its own reasons. So it started off in, um, 
in Tuxum Square in this little park called uh, Gezim Park. Gezi Park. I don't remember the name exactly. Right. Yeah. But um, there was some industrials were trying to come around, tear down the park, which was in Istanbul and one of the last um, like parks available in, in the entire city. Uh, so some, a bunch of youthful environmentalists went out there and had a very like just a peaceful sit-in protest. Uh, police arrived, and I don't remember if it, it wasn't like the first day or anything, but mm-hmm. maybe like the first, like the second or third day, um, the police came around and started using uh, tear gas and, and rubber bullets to disperse the crowds. But then there was. Uh, there was this kid, if I remember correctly, there was like a 13-year-old boy who was like, at a, like trying to go to the market to buy some fruit for his grandmother or his mother or something. And then he ended up catching a stray uh, rubber bullet like in the head and killed him instantly. Oh, man. And then uh, from there, it was no longer really about Gezi Park or the environment or really anything that had to do with that. Now it was about, you know... Uh, Tayyip Erdogan, this oppressive uh, tyrant, uh, people fighting for you know what they wanted to be like a real authentic democracy, um, fighting against police brutality, and that's when it started to really like spread throughout the the Republic of Turkey. Uh, I remember like it was maybe a, f- a handful of hours after that, like Izmir, as, as soon as like Izmir caught the wind of that story they fucking went crazy to, like, another state in Turkey. Yeah. I think uh, Ankara ended up popping off maybe a week or so after the events of Istanbul because everybody was just sort of, like, sitting back watching. But then the, the situation just kept on escalating and escalating and escalating, uh, not just, um, you know... And, and, and the situation literally <laughs> was escalating. I mean, I remember there was this one scene where people had built, like, this 60-foot wall of fucking just... Of like a barricade of miscellaneous items. I mean, obviously, sixty feet is a fucking um, an exaggeration, but yeah, no, the tensions between those people were so, so, so fucking high. And then when it spoiled over into Ankara, people started to to just do like during the middle of the day, they would go out the pro- they would go out to the middle of the streets with pots and pans, you know, making a lot of noise, denouncing the the actions. And the decisions of you know, policymakers, police, Erdogan specifically, the whole party itself. But the situation was completely different at night. At night was when like all the goonies came out, and there were a lot of people that um, were inciting violence, like almost just for the sake of inciting violence, you know. Like they really wanted to piss off the the police, uh, maybe maybe just to see what the fuck would happen, you know. Um, but there were people throwing molotovs. There were like businesses being looted, and, and you know a lot of just a lot of like crazy shit. And that was the first time that I had seen it in person, and I was just like, man, what the hell is going on? And my first, what I wanted to do first was make like a small documentary about it. Because one of the things that I noticed initially was there were no international media covering the issue, like at all, for the first two weeks anyway. And domestic media was heavily censored. Like you turn on the news and instead of getting the news, you'd get this like 
childish cartoon uh, animated series about a fucking penguin. You know what? Yeah, yeah, straight up. So with that being with the streets literally being censored and then international media like the BBC, CNN, not having any kind of coverage of this whatsoever, my instinct was like, okay, well, if I'm just going to be out here protesting and for one, like that's illegal. I'm not even supposed to be doing that anyway because we're like uh, embassy personnel, you know, we're diplomats essentially. So Mm -hmm. like that, you're not supposed to do that. If you got caught in the middle of a protest as a foreign service officer or as the dependent of a foreign service officer, there's a good chance you're going to get deported and have your uh, diplomatic license revoked. So that wasn't really like the smartest thing for me to do. Uh, yeah. But at the time, I felt like it was really important. And I was young. I mean, shit, man. Like, you, you, you see so many fucking people just getting up on their feet and saying, we're sick and tired of the bullshit and standing up to the man, right? Right. And that's, you know, how could anyone not say no to that, at least at my age? Like, how can you not want to take to the streets and, and, you know, express those similar sentiments, even though it's not even my country, you know? Right. But we yeah. all kind of feel like that to some, to some way, shape, or form. And I was just like, you know what? I don't really care if these are my people or not. Like, we're, I, I, know what they're, I know what they're about. I know what they're fighting for. And I believe in it. I believe in this cause. And I believe it's important for me to be out here just as much as it's important for everybody else to be out here. Like, we're literally a hive. Like, we're a collective. And for me to not be out there says a hell of a lot more about me than it would if, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. no. I justified yeah, yeah. it in a lot of different ways, but... Um, well, my point was like, I didn't want to just be out there for the sake of being out there. I wanted to be doing something a bit more proactive about it. And that instinct led me to wanting to make like a short little documentary. I still have the footage and, uh, from like me conducting interviews from a recording, different shots of the protests, um, both during the day and at night, going around to different locations, talking to a lot of different like age groups. It was really fun, like a really fun little process. Uh, but due to like, some technical difficulties. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing, so it was. This is only really a matter of time, but I had to scrap the project just because uh, I reached a point to where I really just didn't know what the fuck to do next. Right. So I scrapped it, uh, but then kept kept showing up for things, and and yeah, at one point, I think one of the biggest moments and and during that time was this one particular night when we went out to what was a, like a principal avenue out there called JFK. Okay. This, during, this was maybe, I don't know, could have been 11 o'clock at night, somewhere around then. Yeah. And we had a group of maybe like 50 people. And so we're walking up, uh, it's me and two other friends of mine, I believe. And so we're walking up and we're like almost at the front lines and we're walking over to, um, to another place Ah, what was it called? Damn it. Well, another part of, like, the the city. We were marching down there because we heard that there was a a large group of protesters that were being targeted, harassed, and, you know, of course, like, arrested, but, like, there there was a lot of brutality going on in that that scene. What what they told us essentially was, like, okay, there were a bunch of protesters over at this mall and um or around like this this area where there happened to be a large commercial center now the thing about this commercial center is like there's only one entrance and one exit 
Like there are there there aren't multiple entrances in this building. It's like a giant. It the building is shaped like a giant sort of maybe U, I guess. Um, and so what the police were doing, they were using st- uh, some strategy to like triangulate people, and then force them into this little this this little uh, complex. And from once the, from once once they got them there in that position, then they started to use tear gas and rubber bullets, like gas to the point to where people were literally passing out in the middle of the street because they couldn't take anymore. And then the police would just come in and then swoop up the bodies and then throw them in a prison and then everybody would wake up whatever, how many hours later in a Turkish prison, which I'm not sure if you've you know heard about it, they're pretty fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, Turkish people that we were with had caught word of this and we were like, okay, yeah, we need to get over there right now and provide some kind of support. So we're marching down there. And then suddenly, like, you get these giant, like, I fucking hell, man. I'm not sure if you've ever seen this before in your life, but three APCs come yeah. pulling up at the other end of the street. And, yeah, I mean, if you've never, it's okay. Like, if you see that shit in, like, Grand Theft Auto or something, it's yeah. one thing. Or you're driving yeah, around, right. like, whatever, just having a good time, <laughs> just a wonderful stroll. Yeah. Taking out another Sunday block or whatever. But uh-huh. it's, a whole, it's a whole different thing whenever you see one of those things in person. Right. They're, they're terrifying. Holy what shit. like what is that like like seeing an armored personnel carrier that oh, has man. just spec well, ops guys it, inside? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just spec ops guys inside. Yeah, no. Uh, the only thing that gave me a little bit of comfort was that the 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 mounted weapons on top of these armored vehicles. It was just a water cannon, and then like one of them, there were two water cannons, I believe, and one of them had like a a, a you know canister launcher for like the tear gas and whatever other smoke gas right right it wasn't going to be using and uh, on this particular night i remember the reason why they were using so many different water cannons is because the water was tinted with like this orange neon paint and that particular night that we were out it was supposed to be a blackout like everybody was supposed to be wearing all black and to uh to show solidarity and so the police getting hip to that were like all right so if we need to identify any like any dissenter, I guess, you know, anybody that was just like acting a fool or anybody that right. was like really just over the top, like you are trying to incite violence. They yeah. would target those protesters with this, um, with this orange paint and then it would stain the clothes. And then that way, like if, if you were ever trying to like walk back home or wherever you were trying to go, if police saw you and identified you, then they would target you. And then they would be mm-hmm. like, okay, you were clearly at this scene where there was a lot of violence there. You're coming with us, arrested, done deal. So that wow. was our little tactic. Yeah. And uh, another little side note, this was, I, I always thought that this was really interesting, but like before the Arab Spring, um, Facebook was used, like social media was used very differently. Like that was, it was always just used to uh, keep in touch with people, like share little memes and whatever that. But then like once the protests and, and different countries as well, people started using social media to coordinate, mm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, to mm. coordinate the efforts of the protests, to give specific directions to people or instructions like, okay, well, that's, that's, I mean, that's how we found out about the, um, about the blackout. Well, well, that's what happened in Libya. Wasn't Libya toppled? They were sending coordinates over Twitter, right? Like airstrike right. coordinates over fucking Twitter. Yeah. 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 Social media, I mean, was the 
lifeblood, if you will. That was the media. It was. It literally was yeah. the Arab Spring. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So so that happens. You you're in Turkey. When do things start to calm down? Because I do remember there was think, a time. Yeah, uh-huh. they didn't after a while. I mean, those protests, they were going on until I left, man. It was just, wow. uh, and then the fucking embassy was bombed. Holy shit. That was, wow. I think that was around the time where we got the order to leave. And I don't remember if it was like, if we got the order to leave or if it just happened that my mom was receiving new orders for a new diplomatic mission. And like, that's why we ended up going to Mexico. But it was all more or less around the same time anyway, so it doesn't really matter the reason why we left. But I do remember, yeah, when a suicide bomber went up to the U.S. Embassy in Ankara and ended up killing, I think it was two people, a Turkish guard, two Turkish guards, and, um, and injured a handful of other people. Um, and it was, it was really sad, too, because one of the Turkish guards, like my mom knew him and everything, uh, he was like a few months away from retirement, his daughter wow. was going to the U.S. to uh, to start her university, and like wow. him working at the uni- uh, excuse me, him working at the embassy was the way he was able to like pay for his his daughter's um, tuition. And so it was That's like, so yeah, bro, like, literally just a handful of months away from retirement, and just you know, living the life and making sure that you you know your family's all good and whatnot. And then yeah, your life is taken away from you in an instant because of some fucking piece of shit some lone wolves too. It wasn't even a part of like any kind of organization, at least like as far as I'm aware there, he wasn't, it was just some lone guy. So, so, so the thing I don't understand is like, who was, were there suicide bombings in Turkey? Cause that, that doesn't sound common. Was that? No, common? It wasn't. No, not at all. The only time oh we got like bombings and like war conflict would be around like the border with Syria, of course. And whatever kind of like engagements the Turkish military would have against the uh, the Kurds, right. because the Kurds occupy like the same geographic space. They're just a lot more east. But like the Kurds have been fighting a revolutionary war since I believe the seventies, like seventy six, I think is when everything like popped off with them. And then uh, yeah, you know they're they're still fighting for for constitutional rights in, in the Republic of Turkey because they're they're an oppressed group. Even wow. though most Turks would most Turks would be like, hell fucking no, like we don't want them in our country. Get the fuck out of here. But like they're just man, we've been here for as long as they have. Like there's no reason why <laughs> we need to be oppressed by by a tyrannical government, at least from the way they see it. You know? Of course. Yeah. No, I mean I yeah, I have another Turkish friend and it's always interesting to hear their perspective on on stuff but you know i think a lot of turkish people at least cosmopolitan ones are, are very um socially aware you know in a way that a lot of americans aren't you know they're they're pretty um i would say engaged in you know activism and, and like human rights and stuff not all of them but the ones yeah that no, are, definitely not all of them the ones and that are i think it's more of like a, a younger person thing to do but i'll be fair when i was yeah, in those course, protests, yeah. they we had people from all different ages i'm not gonna lie we had grandmas walking out there like it was people people were showing up yeah that's a great thing to see man Mm. so so then um your transition from turkey to mexico what what was that what was that like it was sad it was really sad uh because my original plan if you can even call it that was to stay in turkey I had a girlfriend at the time. We were together for like two years. 
um, I wanted to stay with her and was, you know, me and my like really like 19 year old thinking self that I was prepared to do that. Right. And uh, after a few conversations with my mom and my family, they're just like, dude, no, we're not <laughs> going to support you. And that decision, it's, it's either you're going back to the States or you're going to come with me to Mexico, but you're not staying in Turkey. Like, the situation is getting worse. Um, you have, like, no lifeline here. I mean, what right. would happen if, like, you and Ellie were to break up? And right. Like, uh, well, you know, good, fair point. Because, um, like, our plan between me and her was just like, oh, yeah, you're, like, you can live with me. I, like, my parents will take care of you and all of this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> Let's yeah. do it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That would have been great. That would have worked out so great, Devin. Nah, but I mean, it's it's good though. But I was in my feelings. Yeah, but it's good. It's good to at least have wanted that at that age to have been willing to take that risk. You know, like mm-hmm. that's a that's kind of a beautiful thing. But you know, it's definitely not something you should have done. So it's good. Definitely, to yeah, do it. definitely not the move, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But then there was this. I think like the final decision for me was just like it was this old Turkish phrase that a, 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 an acquaintance of mine had taught me. And it's basically like a rhetorical question that goes by, uh, does the one who travels know better than the one who reads? And that has set with me for the, for, you know, to this day, like that's a really important phrase. And it's something that I've used to sort of like dictate my life and, and guide me along. And that was pretty much when I made the decision to just go with my mom. Cause like, you know, fuck the States and keep traveling the world and, See as much as you can, know as much as you can, experience as much as you can. Right. And so, right. yeah, that was pretty much it. And what we did was we had to go back to the States in, what was it, maybe June? Nah, nah. Yeah, I think so. Maybe June or July. And to, like, start the whole process, because in the, you know, in the diplomatic world, or at least in, like, the embassy world and the foreign service, foreign service officer world, Whenever you're changing places, whenever you're changing um, uh, posts, you have to go back to the States and get, like, a whole new, like, psychological evaluation done. You have to get, like, medical checkups. It's, it's a pretty, like, long process, and you usually stay in the States anywhere from, like, one month to three. And so we were there for, I think, a couple of months, if I remember correctly. And I had to do the, almost all the same things that my mom had to go through. Not everything, but a lot of the things just to make sure, like, is your son still, like, psychologically uh, okay with being able to travel and go on another crazy, wild-ass adventure with you? Or is it and then, that he stays here? You know? And then, yeah, and then at some point they said, do you know that your name is Jason Bourne? And you said, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they said, exactly. do you understand that you are a candidate of the Blackwater association he said yes i do understand that I said okay actually i don't i don't have any recollection of that of that uh, yeah. of that experience but i guess that's probably the point right yeah no i mean we we were behind the the you know the two-way mirror um me and quincy um with our clipboards just kind of like being like okay <laughs> so he's 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 taking into the program well all right <laughs> but yeah continue um yeah so we were still in the states for a little bit and then my mom did a really, a fucking really great thing or amazing thing. Still thankful for it to this day. She allowed me to go back to Turkey for a month and stay with uh, our housekeeper. And with, 
in doing so, I was able to like say bye to everybody, uh, clarify things with my ex, and you know, just go out with a bang. Right, right. Yeah. Really finish it like, like yeah. emotional the way it should. Yeah, have. Right. yeah, because that is important for you psychologically for you. So that is mm-hmm. like something that 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 that's kind of needed. That's really great that she did that. That's such a blessing, man. So yeah, great it was. Yeah, man. yeah, man. So and, then, um, yeah, that was probably the biggest, maybe one of the biggest things that, I don't know, set me up for the next stage in my life, which was Mexico, which is still to this day, Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, definitely needed that closure. Then I went back to the States again. And then maybe a few weeks later, we hopped on a flight to Mexico City. So now you're in Mexico City, you touched down. Do you do any research before you get there? Like, what's your I process? I tried not to. No, I tried okay. not to. Okay. Uh, because I already knew more or less what people thought about. And we, like, whenever you're moving into a new post, like, they give you a huge packet. It's maybe, like, a, like uh, anywhere from, like, a 30 to 70-page document that goes over, every, like, most of everything to what you should expect, what your housing unit is going to look like, what you, what you should expect, like, culturally, um, gastronomically, uh, technologically, even, you know, like it goes into, it's just like a, it's like a buy-up before a city, you know, right, like they give right, you right. everything that you should know on a surface level about Mexican, Mexico in general, but most specifically Mexico city. Um, nice. and yeah, I went through that and I was just like, okay, yeah, this seems pretty cool. Like this actually seems really fucking nice. Cause the, uh, we, well, yeah, we were living in Polanco, and for anybody that doesn't know, Polanco is like one of the most nicest places in, in pretty much all of Latin America, to be honest. Like, there's one specific street in Polanco called uh, Masaryk, and it has like this little nickname. I'm not, not everybody uses it, of course, but it has a little nickname to it. They call it the Beverly Hills of, of Latin America. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was a really nice neighborhood, and, you know, about like the general stereotypes of Mexico, like, yeah, of course, like I'd heard it previously and was a little bit, uh, maybe a little bit worried about it, but at the same time, like, I don't know, it wasn't, it it, it didn't really have any impact on my decision and it really didn't have such an influence on the process of me making that decision. Uh, I just sort of felt like, well, okay, yeah, like, but everywhere is fucking dangerous, man. Like I just came from a pretty dangerous place myself. (laughs) Uh, What am I going to worry about out there? And most of the time, I mean, if it's any comparison to, like, the history of, like, gangsters and, and mafia that we had in the United States, then the general rule of thumb is as long as you don't get involved with those people, then you have nothing to worry about. And people still tell me the same thing to this day. Like, yeah, most of the people that are being killed by that specific kind of violence are people that have nothing to do, are, are people that, um, that have a lot to do and have a lot of vested interest into that, um, into that business. But, of course, that isn't completely true. There are still and, uh, a lot of other cases where it's completely the opposite. And um, I think as time has gone on, since you've been in Mexico, you would say that things have definitely gotten to be more, you know, the fallout of these kinds of, you know, under sort of underworld operations going on, impacting the people in the surrounding areas do you think it's gotten like you're feeling do you think from what i've heard from you it sounds like 
the reverberations have definitely been getting more noticeable. Or, yeah, or I think so. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, I mean, I still haven't really had any direct experience with. Well, I don't know. I guess in a lot of ways it depends on how you look at it. Because some people out here believe that, no, if you buy drugs, for instance, you are directly involved with this business. And uh, for a lot of people, like, they re- outright refuse to buy, like, even the simplest things, like weed. It's like, okay, whatever. Like, who gives a shit? Half, and half the countries in the world, that's just legal now. Um, but a lot of people believe that if you are purchasing a product, any kind of product, that you know is directly related with these kinds of organizations then you're contributing to to the business and to the economy as a whole and you're contributing to the for, fortification of these organizations which i don't believe i think that that's a really stupid thing to say but um as far as like the actions and the things that these organizations have been doing i think yeah i mean it's it's definitely gotten worse over a period of 20 years. And I feel like it's, I can feel that it's, it's gotten worse over the past three years. I mean, when I first got to Cholula, remember everybody was telling me, like, when I moved from Mexico City to Cholula, I was kind of worried about Cholula because I didn't really know much about it. I knew it was like a party place, and I knew it was a university town, but I didn't know, like, what the, what the, what the living situation was like. I didn't know if this was, like, a safe place or if it was a dangerous place. I mean, I just came from Mexico City. Most people consider that to be a relatively... Uh, and it's a especially dangerous place, but relatively safe as well. But you just got to stay on your toes and your P's and Q's. And with Cholula, I had, no, I had nobody to really tell me, like, to give me the scope of what it is that we're dealing with. And so when I first got here, like, I would ask people questions about it. And be like, so, yeah, like, uh, you know, have you guys had any experience with that kind of thing or this, this, and that? And they'd be like, actually, no. And most of it is because, like, Cholula, Puebla in general used to be considered uh, like a safe zone for, uh, for people in general, but more specifically for like the narcos, because a lot of narcos have like their children that go to school here. They go to like a lot of, there's a lot of different universities in the state alone. Uh, so many of them choose to send their kids to these places. And there used to be some kind of like, I'm not sure if it was like an unspoken pact or if they literally, if everybody like sat in a room and decided like, okay, we're going to make sure no one encroaches upon this territory so that our children and our families can be safe there. Right. And that's what people were telling me. But nowadays, it's a completely different fucking story. And I'm not sure who was the first one to break that truce. I'm not sure what happened or what uh, transpired to allow for all these crazy fucking things to happen nowadays. Uh, but I mean, yeah, man, like, it's, it's, it's definitely gotten worse out here. Like, uh, one of the most recent uh, things that had happened was like a, a number of different shootings in like this particular place that we live in. And there's a really famous street out here called Calle Catorce. And that's pretty much where all like the restaurants, bars, clubs are. Like that is the golden mile for the university students. And then like just uh, maybe it was, I don't know, six months ago, like just before COVID, there were a number of different shootings in that area and it was all like drug and gang gang related i mean there was one guy that was assassinated in a fucking comedy club there was a a comedy club slash like bar and um there was we have this little place called container city it's just like a bunch of literally shipping containers that have been renovated to become bars it's a really really cool unique spot i had never seen anything like it before 
uh, coming to this little specific town. It's very like very hipster, you know. But still, yeah, like really cool, yeah. really cool. Yeah. And everything's yeah. like super cheap. It's not like hipster. It's not like U.S. hipster, you know. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but um, fucking twenty dollar hamburgers and shit. Yeah. But yeah, there were like I think maybe what three shootings or two shootings and one stabbing maybe. And yeah, it was it was it was all drug related and. You know, one of the guys was literally like a Colombian um, person. Maybe he was like a migrant at some point. I don't, I don't remember what his whole story is or how he got here. But he was one of like a popular buyer for a lot of students. And yeah, this guy got clapped up in the middle of fucking in the middle of container in the middle of the night, like with a lot of bodies surrounding him too. Like Somebody just walked up to him. On, yeah. On any given night, there's easily like 200 people there, easily. And maybe so, even more. And he was someone that was what distributing or something, or. Mm-hmm. And they just were like, nah, like so they just rolled up on him in the middle. They of, just rolled up on him in the middle of a, of a party and just clapped his ass up, and that was that's it. That's crazy. So, and that's and you're saying that kind of stuff didn't happen three years ago. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Wow. So, I mean, what do you think is, is, is going on in Mexico, you know, right now, uh, looking towards the future, you know? I have no idea. I think it largely depends on COVID. Because right. now with COVID, like, everything is chill. I haven't heard of anything, uh, seen anything. I barely even see fucking people, you know. But um, it's different here than it is in other places as well. Like, I'm sure, you know, in places up north, you know, closer to, like, Brownsville, Texas, anywhere... You know, like the barrios of Monterrey or fucking, you know, like Ciudad Juarez, I'm sure is still a fucking war zone. I don't think COVID's really going to affect that too much. But here it definitely did. Here things slowed down. All businesses were shut down for a while. Uh, and I didn't really see like any kind of activity. I didn't hear anything about it either. But um, that's going to depend on how people react once things pick back up again. Once vaccines are distributed, I know that Mexico is working with um, Oxford University in Argentina, so they're developing their own independent vaccine. Um, huh. That's completely different from the Russian one, as far as I'm aware. But huh. that's, that's yeah. I saw some some news about that, which is somewhat exciting. But they're not going to be passing that out until like I think the summer of 2021. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So we'll see what happens. I mean, I know for one thing, like what I'm learning about in my, in my degree, international relations, is that with COVID vaccines being distributed, there's going to be a, a rebound with international migration. Like people are, there's like the numbers have dropped in terms of international migration. Like no, there's not many migrants passing through different territories and through different um, states and regions as, mm. as uh, pre-COVID. But once the vaccines come out, then people are going to start to resume those activities. And one of the things that happens here in Mexico, this is very prevalent in the south and in the north and throughout the entire country, actually. Um, But when you have a large group of migrants trying to come through the southern borders, they have to pass through a lot of checkpoints, deal with a lot of corrupt uh, police. And in many situations, you have to deal directly with narcos. And those narcos, they don't just do drugs. Like, they don't just sell and distribute in different countries in the United States. They traffic humans as well. And so a lot of people get scooped up while riding the beast, which is mm. the, the main train, like the lifeline for migrants that takes them from one part of Mexico to the north. It's called or, the beast? Yeah, la bestia. 
Yeah. That's what they call it. They call it the beast, yeah. There's a lot of documentaries about it, actually. Whoa. Yeah. Do that most Americans good. not admit they, they haven't heard about that? I'm sure they have not. I'll, yeah. I'll, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't until I got here, so I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. But So yeah, there's a whole pipeline. Like, there's like a known route that people have to go, and they call it yeah, the there's, beast. There's yeah, there's plenty. There's plenty. But that's one of the most uh, notorious of them. Yeah. And what happens on that route? Anything. Anything can happen. Sometimes it's a safe journey, you know? I was watching one documentary called Which Way Home. It was literally like following children. Children that have left their homes in Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, that leave like their fucking moms. Or, and, and they take like their own, it's their own initiative too. It's not even like they're being kicked out of their homes or it's not even yeah. like their parents are sending them off to go work in the United States for whatever kind of fucking labor that they're expecting to get out there. Well, these are like nine-year-old people, nine-year-old kids that decide like, okay, I'm tired of seeing my mom work her ass off day in, day out, bring home essentially nothing. Like we're still starving. We're still like doing, like we're still stuck in this crazy situation. It's really fucked up situation. And there's nothing that we can do about it. So they, they, these kids, they take the initiative and they start their own journey and they leave and they somehow one way or another get to fucking Mexico. And then this one documentary, they were riding the beast and it was a relatively, for what like the documentary covered, it was a safe journey for them. Like the kids were almost like they were having fun on the beast, you know, they were making friends. They would, you know, <laughs> run around on the, the train and you know, just play along. But of course, the documentary doesn't follow like the entire story. So right. who knows if these kids are even still alive to this day? There's right. actually, as far as I remember, there's a, uh, there's a, Facebook, a Facebook group about like these two specific kids that starred, starred quote unquote, in this documentary. And this, spe- this uh, specific space in Facebook is trying to like locate these kids. And it's just like a wow. community effort. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, man. It's a lot of, lot of, yeah. But there's a lot of different, like, checkpoints and stops that the train has to make. And in some of those stops, yeah, like, there's fucking corrupt uh, officials there that try to, like, steal people's, um, you know, all their belongings, their, uh, their, uh, their money, whatever they have, right? Right. And say this is the, the charge that it's in order to get past a specific checkpoint. This is the cost of of doing so or maybe it's a blowjob or maybe it's sex or maybe it's this maybe it's that um and and if it's not the corrupt officials then there's a good chance there'll be narcos sitting at that checkpoint and then sometimes yeah man people don't make it out of there like sometimes the narcos don't even give a fuck about taking hostages or taking human um slaves sometimes they just shoot the fucking motherfuckers up like instantly right then and there sometimes they don't care for no reason or because somebody's resisting or because of this, because of that. Like, really, man. I mean, can you find an objective reason for massacring people? That's no, you're right. You're right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. That is very true. So, yeah, man, I want to close this out on, on something positive. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so what do you, you know, what are you up to, you know, personally right now? What's what's going on? Personally, back in school, semester's kicked back up, kicked back up again. Uh, loving it. I'm loving my classes. Everything is great. Everything's online, which I actually prefer. I don't know. I think it's mostly because I have so much more free time, you know? So with my free time, like I'm, you know, getting more creative, uh, still like doing music and stuff, trying to work on like some new collaborations with a lot of different people that I have in my life now. 
just branching out, man, and just trying different things. It's, that's all I, I want to do right now. And, and I'm having a lot of fun, even despite, like, the conditions that the world is in, that everybody's in sort of, like, this, like, universal sort of depression that we're all sort of a part of. Like, I don't, right. in, a, in a lot of ways, I don't feel a part of that. In a lot of ways, I feel more free than I was prior. That's, that's, COVID, which is really that's weird. Amazing. It's not normal. It's amazing. That's how I feel. Yeah. This is, that's such a great thing to hear, dude. I'm, I'm happy you feel that way, man. Well, hey, dude, um, I gotta, I gotta export this file. So, uh, I want to end out here, but Davin, this has been great. We're going to, I'm going to have you on again. Uh, we'll soon. do this again. Yeah, this was fun. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll talk, we'll talk more, but yeah, I want to, I want to put these in, you know, nice little hour increments so people can handle it, you know, Perfect. two hour podcasts, you know, sometimes people get scared. Yeah. So, uh, so, but yeah, Davin, we'll, we'll bring you back on, but thanks again, man. It's been yeah, great. No, thank you, man. Until yeah. next time. Yeah. All right. Dog. Take care. Love talk you. to you later. Peace. Bye Love bye. you too. Dude.